The James Webb Space Telescope was launched on December 25th, 2021. And a space-based telescope exists and has the function of being able to see various ranges of light that are unable to pass through the Earth's dense atmosphere. And so we were all familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope through a variety of years. It, spent, it sent back to us images. And now just in the past number of weeks, and you've probably seen it all over the news, we've been seeing images from the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope. It has the ability to see a broad range of infrared wavelengths that are detectable that were not detectable by what the Hubble could see. And when you combine that capability with the enormous mirror and the superb pixel and resolution of the JWST, you have the most powerful space telescope that ever existed. That image is one of the, the image that's up on the screen is one of the images, in my uh, perception, the most striking image that came out. And it's really interesting to start to look at it. It looks like there's a number of craggy mountains on there on a moonlit evening, maybe, right? And that's actually the edge of a young star-forming region in something called the Carina Nebula. And to just give you a little bit of perspective, this is like having a grain of sand and holding it out at your arm's length and looking at it. That's, that's about the, the size, that distance. That's the relation of how we're looking at it. It's an area called the Cosmic Cliffs uh, that is actually on the edge of this gigantic gaseous activity that I was talking about. And it's roughly, get this, 7,600 light years away. In other words, the image that we are looking at was formed in a time roughly 2,000 years before the first ever writing was invented in ancient Mesopotamia. And its light just now arrived to the JWST. It's been, that cavernous area has been carved from the nebula by the intense ultraviolet radi radiation and stellar winds from this extremely massive hot young stars that are located in the center of this bubble. And on the image, you can also see hundreds of previously hidden stars and even numerous background galaxies beyond what we ever even knew existed before. All those details are fantastic, and I picked out just a few of them to share with you today. I have a few more here. But they exist, and that was a reality that existed in spite of the fact that just until a sh few short weeks ago, we didn't know or have the ability to know, the ability to see that this existed. And the JWST, it made it possible. It made it possible for us to know this reality. And when I look at the images, I see this incredible balance of power, this incredible balance of a universe of order, care, equilibrium. I see the all-powerful hand of an all-powerful God. Even in some of their descriptions, they were talking about this energy that exists in the universe that they don't have an explanation for, but is causing the universe to grow and to expand. And I want to argue this morning, I want to share with you that just as the JD, JWST allows us to see into these images the place that we never knew before, so prayer 
allows us to know God and to see God in ways that we didn't have the opportunity to do before. We're going to see how we can see the beauty and intricacies far beyond even the capability of our minds to know them, know him. Lucas 18 is the passage that we're going to read together, and I'd like you to open to it. We're going to read it together, and it's a parable. It's the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. It's a parable about prayer. The point of a parable is to take something unclear and like a telescope, make it clear. And it's possible for us through a parable as it takes a known story, known ideas, and uses it to describe a point so that we can come to know maybe elements and truths that we did not know before. Lucas, Luke 18, 1 through 8, and we're going to start at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word. There are things for us to hear, to listen to, to grow in today. And we are coming to this place together from many different experiences many different happenings this week. But I believe that you want to speak as we open our hearts and as we take, your, take our time to listen to you. You want to speak and you want to teach us new things that we didn't know or understand before. And I pray that you would do that through this time that we have together this morning. In your name, amen. We've read this passage, and sorry to do this to you, but in order to understand it, it's really important to understand at what point in the interaction that Jesus was having with his disciples we are. And so in order to do that, you actually need to step back to chapter 17, verse 20. And if your Bible, if you have your Bible, you can do it. And I'm just going to run through these next number of verses because reaching the point where Jesus gives this parable, he starts with a question that actually happened between himself and the Pharisees. The Pharisees came to him and they wanted to know about the kingdom of heaven. When is the kingdom of heaven going to happen? Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or a better translation there might be, the kingdom of God has come to us. And so it's, it's set into the setting of when is the kingdom of God going to come? 
And then Jesus starts talking through these next verses. Verse 22, I'm going to skip around here a little bit, but just to catch the main ideas. Verse 22, he says to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Verse 24, he says, he looks ahead and he says, make no mistake, the second coming will be like a lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. So you have this time period where we long to see the second coming, and then you have this moment out there in the future when the second coming actually happens. And now he's going to talk a little bit more about this time period in between. Verse 25, but first the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by this generation that happened, the, the crucifixion. And then come these words, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, there will be eating, drinking, giving in marriage. Verse 28 gives the example of the days of Lot. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building life, happening as normal, just like nothing else is going on in terms of Jesus is Christ's second coming. Life as normal, and he lays it out. And he also talks in verse 29 about Sodom. And it's interesting, when he talks about Sodom, he doesn't mention the sexual sins that are often associated. Instead, he mentions this lackadaisical living life as normal attitude, not aware of the judgment that is to come. And this is a basic human tendency that we have. We live our lives throughout our weeks, and we tend to just get into our routines. And we tend to get distracted. And yet we're in this time period where we're called to live out the kingdom of God, even though his second coming has not yet occurred. Verse 30 says that. It says it will be just like this when on the day of the Son, the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 32 brings an admonishment. Remember Lot's wife who looked back. Her heart was turned towards, it was drawn to the possessions of the world that she had. And we are told in verse 33, even more specifically, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. And then it describes these sort of really drastic scenes. Two people will be in bed. One will be taken. Two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And so it's in the context of that whole conversation then that we arrive at chapter 18 and Jesus asks the question of himself, I think, how can I show my followers how to live through this time? If this is true, if there is that temptation just to live life as normal, what can I do? And he tells them a parable. Usually when there's a parable the reason is not clearly stated up front. Usually the parable is put out there and it's made to cause you to think, but as though in recognition that this parable perhaps is a little bit more difficult to understand, Luke writes the reason right at the beginning. And he says he told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. There's a recognition in there and that's my first point that we are prone as people to giving up. Have you thought about that this last week, this last month, this last year? Have you had a temptation maybe to give up? If you look at that in the original Greek, there's a weariness associated with that. There's a spiritlessness. 
I think we struggle with that, we face that. And how easy it is it then to maintain your spiritual ears tuned to God's voice? And what capacity do you have to, like the telescope that we were looking at, to be able to see beyond the density of the things around us to who God is? This parable asks and has in it some maybe some difficult things. And as I was reading through it, there's some difficult questions that I think that come up. And so I'll just put those out there. So this is a lady, she's seeking justice. And if God is a just God who is all powerful, why do unjust things happen to his children? This parable says that God's going to respond quickly, speaks of quickness. Why then does it seem sometimes that the answers take so long and sometimes maybe like God's not even listening? Jesus asks at the end, when I come, Will I find faith on the earth? Is he in doubt about that? Could it happen that he might come and there might not be faith on the earth? Does our faith, the amount of faith that we have, impact the speed with which God responds? These are all questions that are tough questions that are wrapped up into the middle of this parable. And so in front of that tendency that we have, maybe to give up, maybe to be distracted by, to be, um, I guess, desensitized to God around us, then he tells this parable. And let's look first at the judge. Verse 2 talks about him. It says, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Do you get the irony there? A judge who was an unjust judge. He did not care about truth. He did not care about what was right. He was a man of authority who himself did not put himself under authority. He had power, but it was an unrestrained power. He was not directed by a code of what was right. And then it gets even worse because the word here used is intrepo, which literally means, I want us to get this idea, turned by. So it says he was not turned by what people thought. And if you study that even a little bit deeper, it's not just what people thought, but he, he didn't care about people. His behaviors, his actions, what he did, he did not allow himself to be touched by what people would think. So that's our judge. That's this this judge, this description of who this is. Let's look a little bit at the widow now. Why a widow? Why did God pick a widow and put the widow in this parable? Why did Jesus do that? Have you ever noticed in the Bible that when a widow is talked about many different places, widows and orphans are placed together? And that's because in the society, both in the Old and the New Testament at that time, being a very patriarchal society, <laughs> A woman who became a widow actually lost her place and her standing so much in society. She lost her social standing. She lost her ability to have property. She lost the place in society. She was basically like an orphan. She was defenseless. She has no power. 
And she comes to the judge and she says, grant me justice against my adversary. And this again is perhaps a little muted in our English because literally she is saying, give me vengeance. Avenge me for the things that I've been going through. She is not capable of changing. She's not able to move her situation. And she goes to the judge, even though he's an unjust judge, from this judge who doesn't care, doesn't care if she's wronged or not. And she cries out to this judge. I think we can identify with her sometimes. I think many of us face things where we understand that there has been injustice, where we need to be avenged, where we need vengeance in a good sense of the word, where things that are truly wrong have happened and occurred. And I want to bring two verses here that use this exact same word. I don't have them on the screen. I'm just going to read them as what's used when she asks for justice or avenging. Revelation 6.10, the martyrs crying out to a just God said this, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood, avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And Romans 12.19 brings a response from our God. I'm bringing this from the King James here. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath or let go of the wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He promises us that he is the right one to be exercising vengeance. So what does the judge do with this request of the widow? For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, he knew this about himself, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the image here in the original is actually kind of of a boxer pummeling, right? And I just thought that was a funny image of the lowly widow pummeling the judge with her repeated questioning. She doesn't come and pummel me and wear me out. Can you see what's happened here? The widow has persisted in her request. She has persevered. She has won her answer from who? From an unjust judge who does not care about good and does not care about her. He is not turned by what people think, but he was turned by what? His own selfish desires. He was turned because he cared more about himself than about anything else. And it happened that because of her insistence, this reaction inside of himself, so he gives her justice. That idea is more embedded into our society and into our thought about God than what we necessarily understand. And my second point would be if We are prone to give up. Second point is we are prone to allow our vision of man to define our vision of God. 
We know how that is. If we insist enough, if we ask enough, we can often get the answers that we need because the person wants to get us out of their hair. And all throughout history, different religions have included components of relationship to God where it's like there's this cosmic competition going on where you need to get through to God with your request. And so you have the prophets of Baal who are cutting themselves so that there's blood. Maybe that will get his attention. You have the sacrifices that happen. You have just simple works. If I'm good enough, if I do things enough, and we catch ourselves asking these questions. Did I not pray enough? Maybe if I had prayed a different way. Maybe if I had asked in this way. Or maybe if I hadn't done this. Because that's how we are. That's how humans are. And this judge is a reflection of that. These first two points have looked at who we are, who man is. And now the next three things that I want to consider with you. Because remember, the point, the question of this passage is, why should we pray and persist? Jesus is saying that the point of this parable is pray and don't give up. Pray and don't give up. Why? Why should we do that? What is this passage going to teach us that is going to encourage us to continue to pray? And Jesus, in contrast to this judge that was just described, then in verse 7 is going to bring some few brief, simple thoughts. He says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? You and I are his chosen ones. If you have submitted your life to Jesus, if you have taken yourself off the throne of your life and said, Jesus, be on the throne of my life, forgive me for my sin, take control, you are his chosen one. It means he knows you. He knows your name. He has a relationship with you. You're on a first name basis. You're not just another name in a docket flowing in front of the judge who's not known. You're known. You're seen. I'm not sure if I shared this story here once before, but about two years ago, we had a situation. I work with foster care at ABBA, and a little baby, just born, abandoned on the sidewalk, left in a cardboard box. A couple found her, took her to the hospital, and what happens in that situation is that child is then sent to care. Uh, in our case, she came to one of our foster families. But she's completely without identity. And the judge in that situation gives a name. And I thought it was so beautiful that in the middle of that difficult, hard situation, the judge, in giving her a name, didn't just pick any name. The judge gave her her own name and put her name on her as though to say, this child matters. This child has a place. 
that starts to change this relationship, doesn't it? As we think about praying to a God, you are not praying to an unjust God who you do, whose name you don't know and who doesn't know your name. Think about the men that, the, the blind men, I believe, or was it lepers, that came to Jesus and healed them. The majority didn't come back. One came back and thanked him. And I, we don't know, Jesus doesn't develop the story beyond this, but this widow, I'm almost certain, after she got her answer, didn't continue a relationship with this judge, right? Jesus invites us into a relationship. It's not one request that we take to him. It's various requests that we take to him throughout our lives, and we develop our relationship with him. We are chosen, and he cares. That's one of the reasons for us to persist in prayer. Then we get to the part where Jesus says, will he keep putting you off? Will he keep not answering? Will he keep bearing your request without responding? That's the language that's here. And Jesus responds, no, they will get justice and quickly. And what I want to do with this word quickly is we're talking about time, right? And the point that I want to give to you that I want to make that I want you to write down and I want to sustain here as I talk to you is we can trust God's timing. Revelations 1.1, if you look at that word quickly, it's also translated as soon in numerous places in the Bible and in important places associated with the second coming. Revelations 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. It hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for those events that are going to happen in Revelation, many of them. Revelations 22.6, last chapter, so first verse, and then last chapter of the book. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It hasn't happened yet. And time is something that is notoriously uncertain. We close our eyes, we think we've slept for just a little bit, and we've slept 10 hours. And I know lots of melodramatic dads say this, but a couple weeks ago, Naomi graduated. I swear I blinked and she grew up, just like that. We're inside of time. God is outside of time. Looking at the James Webb Space Telescope, it is traveling so fast, it goes the distance of New York to London in 12 minutes flat. And yet that image that we're looking at there, right there, it took 7,600 years for the light to be able to reach that telescope. We need to remember who we are, that our vision is limited human bound and therefore incomplete, we cannot see what God sees. Because we are limited, human bound and incomplete, we are not in a position to measure either God's justice, his love, or the speed with which he is responding. He has promised us that he is just, that he loves us, and that he will not be slow in response. 
And prayer becomes the bridge by which we respond to this, by which we reflect on these truths and we understand the true character of who God is. Second Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. These verses talk about, and this is the third point in relation to why we should persist in prayer that God is good and he is just. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change, remember that word, who does not change like the shifting, th shifting shadows. Psalm 11.7 says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, the upright will see his face. That verse in James that says he will not change like shifting shadows, it uses the exact same word as what's used to talk about this judge. The judge was not changed by his care or an understanding of justice. This verse uses the word change to say that God will not change because he is true to himself, to his righteousness, to his goodness, to his justice, and because of that, we can trust in every good and perfect gift that comes down from him. He made the stars. He built the very things that the whole world stands in awe of. When we are finally able to build an instrument that lets us see just a little bit, and there's so much more beyond yet. Joel Rast and I have spent many mornings over the last two years reflecting and praying, learning together as we've considered the respective losses that we've gone through. And one phrase from Tim Keller that we have chewed on repeatedly says this, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. What is required there? Faith. Faith is required. And that is how Jesus ends this parable. When I come, will I find faith on the earth? John Piper uses an example that prayer is like a shovel that shovels the fuel onto the fire of faith. And in order for that faith to keep burning, you need to be regularly involved in prayer. To summarize the parable, like the widow, we are to keep coming, we are to believe, we are to not give up. And unlike the judge, God has a relationship with us. He has chosen us. I prayed about a really hard thing this week, Thursday evening, with my director at ABBA. We cried together on the phone. And these verses were really helpful to me to be able to think about and imagine my father, 
my good father, paying attention, aware, present, not distracted, but caring. We can trust his timing and we can trust his character. He is good and he is that just. Faith involves knowledge. I know who God is. I know that he is just and true, all-powerful, all-knowing. It involves decision and relationship. I believe this that I know about God because of the truth that I have learned and because I believe I trust. And it becomes the way in which I live out my life. When Jesus comes... Will he find faith in your life? 